Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today we're joined by Bo and Carl. And for Symposium 50, we have a very special topic. We are going to talk about Hesiod's wisdom, especially as it is manifesting in the Theogony, which has to do with the birth of the gods and the battle of the Titans, and how Zeus assumed the order of the world, and Works and Days, which is, you could say, a piece of wisdom literature comparable with uh, pieces of wisdom literature from other cultures, where we have a really deep dive into the myth of Prometheus, myth of Pandora, and the myth of the five ages. And also, there is also some plenty of interesting advice and superstition by Hesiod, who's talking to his brother, with whom they are having a sort of uh, fight, because his brother Perseus took more than his share of their inheritance. By their deceased father. So, thank you for joining me for Symposium 50. I think it's going to be a really nice topic to discuss. So, main question is why read Hesiod? My answer is that Hesiod is really interesting on, on his own, but he also helps us contextualize the Homeric epic. So, once we read Hesiod and his poems are surprisingly short, we can understand the Iliad and the Odyssey much better. And uh, at some point, I think we will talk about them. Yep, yep. And uh, I'd say it's just sort of a foundational text. Yes. If you do an A-level or an undergrad in ancient history or classical civilizations, on the reading list will be the Iliad, the Odyssey, and at least Works and Days, but just Hesiod in general, yeah. where the Theogony and, and some other things, the Shield of... Heracles or whatever. Um, they're things you are absolutely expected to have read. Um, there's no two ways about it. And I think foundational just for the entire uh, Western canon, like, um, like Gilgamesh or something. Mm. Um, if you're going to start at the beginning, if you want to understand what sort of medieval people or modern people, when they looked back at the ancient world, what they had to go on, Hesiod's right there. Yes. Because considering how old Hesiod is, we don't know exactly, do we, but maybe 6th, 7th, 8th century BC, something like that. Um, it's, you know, Works and Days is complete, basically, isn't it? It's an epic poem, but it's a much, much, much shorter epic poem compared to the Iliad. But it's just something you sort of should have read or know about if you want to, if you're interested in the ancient world anyway, the Greek tradition and all that sort of thing. You can't skip over it. Yeah. I mean, per personally, I just really enjoy experiencing ancient worldviews because they're so different to our own. Uh, it, things that we consider abominable are just totally normal. Uh, for example, in, in Works and Days, a large portion of it is dedicated to um, explaining how your slaves ought to plow your fields and how, what you should be doing and things like that. And uh, it's just such a remote thing that we are just like, okay, well, I mean, they, it was just expected you'd have a slave, so get your slave to sow the seed as you plough the field, and it's, it's a totally alien world. It is alien, but I think that there are some commonalities underneath. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's what makes it even more surprising, mm. you could say, because it's, on the one hand, totally different, because they were taking some things for granted that we don't, or they were, they were in favour of things that we are not. Let's put it this way. Mm. But also there are some pieces of advice, like, you know, finding everything the right proportion mm. and uh, 
you know, take calculated risks and don't destroy everything mm. at once that are applicable, surprisingly, even today. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can talk about the sort of, you could say, eternal principles of prudence or wisdom or morality, but this might be a bit of a stretch. I don't know if... No, no, I, I think there's probably something to that, because... Yeah. Um, one one of the one of my favorite things about working days is the fact that it's couched as a lecture for his lazy brother Percy, yes, uh, who is lazy, indolent, incompetent, doesn't know how to do what Hesiod considers to be essentially the most basic things to exist and subsist, uh, and so it, it, the whole thing feels like an angry lecture yes. from one angry brother to another, which is just hilarious, frankly. So one, one thing to say is that uh, there are several poems that have been attributed to Hesiod. Of course, it is debated whether they were actually Hesiod's <clears throat> or not. There are scholars saying, okay, Theogony is not Hesiod, or Theogony is Hesiod, and works and days may not be his, or, you know, Shield of Heracles is considered by many to be not Hesiod's. But, uh, you know, we, whatever, whoever wrote them, they're nice to read about them. And they contain interesting insights. And the important thing is that I think, as you said, they give us some insights into the ethics of the archaic period. Mm. And uh, a lot of scholars are locating Hesiod as a contemporary of Homer's in the last, let's say, third of the eighth century BC. Now, one thing to say about the last third of the eighth century is that it was in many ways a, a transitional period and there was an established trade and there was a development of trade between several cities, Greek city-states and the Eastern world. And there were more influences there. And there was also a kind of um, more extroverted attitude on behalf of the Greeks where they went out and established several city-states, and they tried to have them, and there was somehow increased trade between them. So there was increased trade and communications that brought the ancient Greece into contact with the Oriental world. And a lot of people are saying that the Theogony of Hesiod has surprising similarity with the Numa Elish, the epic of creation by hmm. the, in the ancient Mesopotamia. They say there are some differences, like Hesiod's treatment of the myth of the ages, especially in works and days. But uh, there were significant influences. Hmm. And also, what is important is that during that time, Homer and Hesiod were, in a sense, pioneers because they were in the oral poetic tradition and they were, talk they were having audiences in mind. But they also took advantage of the written word because that was the, the time where the Greeks got the alphabet from Phoenicians and they developed an alphabet of their own. So there was, for the first time, the written word, in a sense. Well, That's, it actually wasn't the first time, was it? Because you've got uh, Mycenaean Linear A and Linear B, yeah. um, which were forgotten during the Greek Dark Ages after the Bronze yeah. Age collapse. So this is Greece coming out of that period, isn't it? Yes, but they are... No, you're correct. But I think that uh, a lot of the scholars of Hesiod, they're saying, for instance, that 
the reason why we are locating Homer and Hesiod in the beginning of Greek literature mm. has to do with them sort of applying that kind of oh. vocabulary. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. You're, that you're correct. You're they, correct. They are the beginning of Greek literature. Yeah. It's like, um, just, just to explain, essentially, Greece is coming out of a cataclysm. Yeah, that's in fact the, the entire Eastern Mediterranean is coming out of a cataclysm, uh, and so a lot of things are kind of being rediscovered. Yes, of course. There's been writing before, thousands of years before this. I think what Stelios just meant was that the type yeah. of Greek that you get in classical Athens, the same alphabet that um, in the sixth century, fifth and sixth century, you know, higher classical Greece. So in that sense, yeah. Now the eighth century BC is quite early still. You've mentioned that the Greeks are expanding eastwards, also westwards, or beginning to, Greek city-states, it's a little after this, but not long, sort of start colonising Italy and even southern France and stuff. Um, and in Works and Days, he talks about taking boats and things. One yes. thing I wanted to mention, uh, two things actually, one is scholars or historians uh, like to argue a little bit about who's older, yes. uh, of Homer and Hesiod. Yeah, there's prestige it's sort of, in it, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, the point I was going to make is that it, you, we sort of can never know and it sort of doesn't really matter exactly, does it? Um, I'm, of the, I'm of the opinion that Homer isn't even one person, but there you go, it's born out of a, an, an oral tradition. Um, another thing I think is worth mentioning straight away is that Hesiod, if he was indeed one person, which at least the author of Works and Days, I think, must be one person, uh, is from Boeotia, right? So that's important, I think, for people to realise. And you can tell us about this, uh, yes. actually knowing for real what it's like yes. there. That it's a difficult bit of land to be a farmer on, right? Yes. Um, it's not the most fertile of, to be of fair, land. Most, most of Greece is like that. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to set up a couple of those things for context. Yes. So, basically, his father was considered to be a tradesman in minor Asia and I think he lost his fortune and he needed to migrate to mainland Greece to Boeotia as you said which is really it's somehow close to Athens it's not very far it's close to Thebes for mm. instance and uh, he went to the village of Ascra that was again a rough area but that's where uh, he became a farmer and uh, Hesiod also was a farmer and um, as we say in Works and Days... Perseus wasn't a farmer. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> they had a row, a quarrel over their inheritance. And Hesiod was saying that the, the good thing, the correct thing, <clears throat> the just solution would be for them to split their father's inheritance. But Perseus took more of his fair share. And also he draws an image of his brother as basically essentially being somehow deadbeat. Is, is this oh, the, yeah. the right That's word? definitely the impression I got. Yes, who loves gossip. He loves bribing politicians. He, basically, it's... Not doing work. Yeah, he doesn't Yeah, he's <laughs> lazy. One thing, the impression I got is there's a line or two in it where he says, um, basically says, make sure your larder's full, make sure your barn is full of, of yeah. the food that you've grown. And, uh, and stop spending loads of time at court, hanging around courts. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why, but that line usually sticks in my mind as um, that the brother Perseus is like an urbanite in some way. Hmm. Um, but it is odd because 
I mean, I actually find Works and Days quite funny. Mm. There's, there's some, it's so weird, it's funny. Yeah. But it's also sort of, sometimes some of the lines are fairly profound and interesting. I mean, you say it may have uh, borrowed from even more ancient Mesopotamian texts, but also paraphrased lines end up, basically end up in Proverbs in the Bible and stuff. So anyway, but they're also sort of universal things like, you know, um, there's also just universal. The thing, the thing that I think is funny about just a general point is that he talks a lot about tilling the land and how to, how to deal with your oxen and the passing of the month. Uh, but then also just general purpose, uh, don't do this, hmm. don't think like this or whatever. And then small little details like don't pee in a stream, a particular stream, the head point, stream pointing yeah. towards the sun. And they all, so it's funny because it, it's almost like he's telling, if Perseus is a small child, he's yes. telling him everything from scratch. It's like, but he's a grown man though. Um, you've been brothers. Why are you telling him all this now? It's just a bit of a weird, funny, odd text to me. So the, the impression I got of Perseus is just literally he's totally irresponsible. I mean, at one point he says, don't go asking your neighbours for food or money because you'll get it the first couple of times, but then they'll just tell you to go away. You know, they're not going to allow you to live off of them. And so it implies that Perseus has done that sort of thing. He's just, he doesn't do any work. He doesn't pay any attention. He, do, he just goes around begging for money off of other people. It's like, this is humiliating, Percy. You're making us all look bad. Go do some work. And if you don't know how, which is entirely possible if you've never really done any work, these are the seasons. This is how things are done. You know, this is how you cut the wood and how many planks you need. And it, like, it's really like, down to basic. Maybe Percy's is really young, just has be, just become a man or something. Because that's the only thing that really makes sense. You wouldn't say these sort of things to a grown man. Like, you well, know, it depends uh, how irresponsible he is. You know, <laughs> make sure you wear a warm coat in winter because it gets cold. It's like, well, yeah, he's a human being in the world. You don't, do you need to tell him that sort of thing? I, I don't know. I have a slightly different... You haven't met Percy. <laughs> I have a slightly different view on this because it seems to me that what we now think as obvious may not have been, seemed to be obvious. Maybe, yeah. And I think that one of the really interesting features of wisdom literature is how commonsensical in a sense it is. Mm. They're telling us really weird stuff. But I think that not no weird stuff. They're telling us essentially you know, really common truths. But on the other hand, the important thing to bear in mind is how often we forget them in action. Mm. So when we say, for instance, okay, he tells him, always seek the right proportion or the find what is fitting in each situation. You could say that this is commonsensical on the one hand, but on the other hand, how often do we, do we violate? Mm. It's like with logic, that uh, a lot of people are saying, well, I mean, logic is completely commonsensical. Of course, you shouldn't contradict yourself. Why focus on logic? But you see, most of yeah. our mistakes are elementary mistakes. Mm. And I think That's that there is point. a an equivalent in wisdom tradition where they're literally saying all sorts of stuff like how to eat food, how to, how to greet other people. Because in a, in a sense, I think that it's not so much being told something or being instructed to do something as much as forgetting it afterwards in action. I always wonder how much of this is tied into the religiosity of the people as well. Because, you know, in the modern era, we just don't 
think outside of the mechanical frame of the universe. But if you've got a genuine and deep-seated belief that there are gods and spirits and they're everywhere and they do everything all the time, then you might genuinely leave the house thinking, well, you know, Zeus will provide me with warmth or something. You know, something which sounds really silly to us. But actually, is it that silly to Perseus? Is it that silly to someone in the archaic period in Greece? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Well, it's massively religious, isn't it, when you read the yeah. text? It's massively... Yeah, well, that's the uh, thing. The, the, the entire text is kind of infused with just religious belief. And so I, I always think about this because it's, it's so alien to our view of the world. Like, I, you know, when you get up in the morning, at what point does God enter into your thought process? It just doesn't, right? <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. But to these people, they can't think outside of that frame. So, like, dragging them back down to earth is actually a lot of what works and days and a lot of wisdom literature is actually about. It's like, no, no, think about where you are immediately, what's in front of you, what you're actually dealing with. You know, and I do wonder how much of it is because, you know, maybe their heads are a bit in the clouds. Yeah, I mean, um, the other thing, just building on that a bit, but the other thing that I find interesting as a general point before we sort of get into all the details and everything is that um, there's just sort of general purpose wisdom, hmm. you know, like um, this, this, this sort of woman you should marry, this is the sort of neighbour that's good and all that sort of thing. And then there's loads of things that are, so it's still completely relevant today. Yeah. Then there's loads of things that are complete nonsense, really, like the, how different days of the month are auspicious. Like, there's quite a long <laughs> bit about that, yeah. right? Yeah, the, uh, you know, like if the your final kids... quarter is basically that. <laughs> Sorry? The yeah, final yeah, quarter right, yeah. of it is basically... Yeah. Don't do this on this day, do that on that day. You know? Yeah, and it's all bound up with superstition. It's a, yeah. a religious type of superstition. Yeah. Um, and how, how and when to make offerings to the gods and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's massively, I think, religion and superstition, you know, where those, where those two things cross over. Because um, it's not necessarily explicitly God or the gods want you to do this or be like this or say or do this. But it's just, you know, Without any real explanation, the sixth of the month is an inauspicious day, but the tenth of the month is is quite <laughs> yeah. good, and the twentieth of the month is brilliant. Yeah, and, and be the, very wary of the last day of the month. And it's the, not, you know, uh, it's the, just superstition, really. Isn't he it? said you the twenty seventh is the best day to be born right. each month. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The tenth is a good day for a boy to be born, but not so much for a girl. It's like what? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? What are you talking? About? You know. Um, yeah. So no, it, that sort of stuff I find interesting and even a bit funny sometimes. Yes. And one major reason why I think Hesiod is uh, important and interesting to read is because we can get a much better idea of philosophy. Because philosophy is supposed to be emerging out of the mythological tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a German scholar called uh, Wilhelm Nestle, I think a classicist, who basically said that the pre Socratics were, in a sense, the first philosophers, marked a with their ways of thinking, a sharp transition from myth to logos. I think that in a, to an extent this is right, but the exact nature of that split isn't very clear. And I think that in a way Hesiod is showing signs of philosophy because he tried to systematize myths. Myths were basically um, communicated for, for centuries before Hesiod, but he tried to systematize all of them in a grand narrative that had a structure that also supposedly 
describe the structure of the world. So interestingly, Hesiod does think that the world has an order, but it is unlike the order that the pre-Socratics were thinking. It is an order in the world that is essentially depending, dependent on the arbitrary wills of gods. Mm. But it is an order. That's an important thing. It's not completely disconnected to something. And that's why they were saying we're talking about a cosmos when we're talking about a cosmogony, because the cosmos was something like how it's used as a sort of a jewel, something that it's something that shines through. That's horrible. It's horrible. But uh, yeah, they, and I always found this counterintuitive, but they were saying that cosmos and order are in, in, inextricably interlinked. interlinked. And uh, Hesiod was trying to put an order into what before was just a, a number of distinct myths. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the entire thing is geared around creating predictability. Yes. Like Hesiod believes in a predictable, orderly universe. Yes. And, you know, he's got one explanation for how it came about. But the predictive power of the explanation is actually pretty good, actually. You know, it's like, look, the, the yearly cycle is like this. So at this point in time, do this. At that point in time, do the other. Then reap your crops. Then, you know, and, uh, you know, like he's got some good, just good small bits of advice that I quite like it. Um, it's like later in the year, chop the lumber because then it's less likely to worm. Like, that's a good point. Yeah, that's probably a very useful thing, actually, because, you yeah. know, maybe in the spring, Perseus would have chopped his lumber instead, and, oh, look, it's full of worms, you know? Yeah. So, it, it, like, it does have predictive power and practical use, yes. even if it, you know, even if I don't believe Zeus actually ordered the cosmos. Yes. In Works and Days, there's definitely a bunch of practical advice, isn't it? Like, when oh, these yeah. particular shoots are this size, this is when you've got to start yeah. doing X, Y, Z in the fields and all that sort of thing. When these birds, types of birds appear, it's the time of the year to do whatever. Um, yeah, I think with the philosophy thing, certainly in Theogony, it's a very, very early attempt at metaphysics, I suppose you could say. And in Works and Days, there's definitely some uh, sort of proto-early, again, sort of moral philosophy on some level. Um, so that's fair to say. But one thing I would just stress again is how early Hesiod is, if he is the 7th or even 8th century BC, you know, well, um, Herodotus says that he thinks Hesiod and maybe Homer lived approximately 400 years before him. Yeah. Before Herodotus. Mm. Um, and Herodotus also says there's a line in Herodotus saying that he thinks that Hesiod and Homer are responsible essentially for uh, his age, Herodotus's age, nearly all their knowledge about. Uh, well, metaphysics or about the gods and about the the genealogy of the gods that they basically owe nearly all of it to Hesiod and Homer. Yeah. Um, so that's quite a thing, actually. That's quite a thing for Herodotus to say that there's not a whole massive load of literature now lost to us. He mm. just says that he says Homer mm. and Hesiod. So not a, not another dozen names yeah. or anything. Because that, that's a good point. So if you look at say the the Bible. There are dozens of Jewish prophets. You know, there are you know, loads and loads of prophets over the ages who have contributed to the lineage of what would have been sort of like classical era Judaism, right? And they, they, you know, they stretch back into the archaic theory and whatnot. But that is interesting, actually. There's literally just these two guys. Mm. The Herodotus just say, yeah, it's just these two guys. I mean, there are loads of, you know, judges. There are books, you know, various books of 
Daniel, Isaiah, all these others, you know, it's just like, that's, that's a huge tradition. And the Greeks are like, yeah, we've got these two guys. They, they had it all down. I mean, Theogony, at least, where, you know, um, Hesiod talks about, um, you know, Uranus beget, beget um, whoever, and so on and so on, down to the Olympian gods. Um, and if you believe Horacius anyway, of course they've not. got that just from hmm. Hesiod. But in Herodotus's so, defence, he is the most vindicated man of all time. <laughs> like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a Herodotus defender. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the gold ants dig up at gold. It's true. <laughs> we found them. We'll do an episode on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And last thing to say before we go to the, um, to the, <laughs> to the birth of the gods, yeah. according to Hesiod, if you like us talking about the golden age, definitely stay with us because Hesiod is one of the first people who talked about the golden age. And to a very large extent, everyone who talks about the golden age after him is referring to Hesiod's depiction of it in the works and days. So it's definitely interesting. So the Theogony is essentially a poem about the birth of the gods and how we came from chaos to the rule of Zeus. And as Hesiod thinks, the rule of Zeus is wise and everlasting, because that's the most important thing of all. Zeus swallowed Metis, and Metis is counsel or wisdom, and that prevented him from, and that gave him, in a sense, a kind of foreknowledge to anticipate threats. Now, there may be some holes in the plot, especially when we talk about <laughs> Prometheus and Pandora, we will bring them up. But this is what essentially is Hesiod's idea, because Hesiod thinks that basically the world, Zeus governs the world, mm. and that Zeus's go governing is basically just. I was going to say, Theogony is sort of uh, an epic poem dedicated to Zeus in a way, but it's just full of murder and rape yeah. and sex and killing and war. There's a war between the Olympians and the Titans, right? Um, it's, sort of, it's sort of truly epic, not necessarily in scale, because it's only not that long, actually, is it, really, in the scheme of things? Nowhere near Homeric epic. Um, but it's sort of your, your classic ancient Greek fair where there's no holes barred. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, just, yeah, lots, lots of sex and killing in it. And, um, yeah, it's the worst thing, it's the furthest thing from sort of the delicate sort of woke stuff we're used to these days. Um, also kind of reinforces the maxim that history is written by the victors. You know, we don't get the titans in per interpretation of what happened, do we? <laughs> right, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Now, one thing to say is that it was a tradition of the poets to start a poem by saying that the muses inspired them. Mm. And uh, Hesiod does, does this in both poems, both of the Ogonian works and days. And it's really interesting in the beginning, and I really like this part, because he basically said that the muses found him while he was attending, tending to his lambs on Mount Helicon in, near his village. And basically they, they ordered him to sing the Song of the Gods, and he basically implies that they are the goddesses of the art and of the arts, among other things. And 
it's interesting for me because it seems like he's appealing to divine inspiration and mm -hmm. uh, he implies also that the muses have the ability to cure grief because they are also the the goddesses of art and mm -hmm. music and poetry and stuff and he literally says that they are able to cure grief and i think that's an interesting idea when it comes to thinking of, of art and poetry and uh, epics so to what extent someone who to what to what extent we think that art is therapeutic it says the is it the seven or nine daughters of zeus they're the daughters of zeus directly yeah. and nine so daughters. Right the way there, with, with the modern mind at least, or everyone's tried to do this throughout the centuries, is try and get a picture of Hesiod or whoever wrote Theogony and works and days. So what, what is going on? So you can't really avoid the conclusion that he's a, a farmer, a peasant, really, someone that works the land that isn't independently wealthy yeah. and has to deal with the, sort of the hardships of being out in the weather all year round and that sort of thing. So, but also a, 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 a poet. Um, also, where did someone he learn literacy. Right, so that's that's exactly the, my question. So, where did he learn literacy, and where did he learn all of the stories? Uh, we wow. we divine, don't know. That's divine lost. inspiration. That's, that's all I can imagine. My imagination, my personal thing is that he would have had either his father or a mentor of some type mm. when he was younger or a child that would just tell him all this stuff whilst they were watching their flock. And later, when he became a man, sort of, it all comes spilling out yes. in, in the theogony and works and days. And, but we don't know. That's just pure conjecture where a, uh, where a Boeotian farmer got all this from. I suspect that a know. lot of it is cultural osmosis. Right? Yeah, maybe. So, right, yeah. You know, yeah. At some point, I mean, they'd go down be. to a town and Please. someone will have just said something that would just be um, the sort of... Um, throwaway phrase that people say you know it's like oh god save me from this or something like that you know it implies that there it implies a bigger structure to the belief system that is not necessarily being expressed and if you you know just have this accumulation of this over time then maybe he's just idly there on the mountain tending his flocks being like actually no this does all make sense and you know suddenly he can put it all together and from his perspective he's like well the muses have come to me and just put this in my head but maybe. Another thing that to point here is that I, he was trying to systematize the mm. tradition of myth mm. in, as expressed in poetry. So I think that it was very common for poets to visit towns and, yeah. and talk about the same, in a sense, the myth. So it, it seems to me that it was about to happen. And Hesiod sort of did it. Uh, first, or it was one of the first who did Hesiod it. was the first autist, yeah. <laughs> well, there is sort of famously the aoral tradition, right? Yes. Um, yeah. That also Homer's stuff is born out of. Yeah. That we know for a fact, really, that mm. there would have been a, a long, very glorious tradition of just sort of stock phrases, stock mm. stories uh, passed down by word of mouth. Yes. And I guess just Hesiod was particularly exposed to that and or good at remembering it and things i, I, I don't oh. know maybe nearly every adult man had a hesiod level of knowledge of this stuff we don't we, we don't I, know that i i got the feeling from hesiod that basically there are lots of 
contradictions that need smoothing out in all of these collective oral works. And I just got the feeling that he was just sat there one day thinking, yeah, no, I can do this, actually. I can thread a needle through all of it. And this is how it all came to be. This is why there are five ages, blah, blah, blah. And so he just has to write it down. Yeah, we also know that at different places in Greece at different times, there will be different traditions, different mm. stories about Zeus. Oh, yeah. Or about Gaia Hercules. or Uranus or whatever. Yeah. Um, and obviously Hesiod gives us basically one version, his version. Uh, but we know for a fact there, would have, there was more than one tradition of it. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, no, we, we definitely know that for a fact. And um, there is uh, the Library of Greek Mythology by Apollodorus, who, for instance, talks about the myth. He, he is also trying to systematize myths. That's called the tradition of, I think, mythography. And uh, he is talking about the myth of Oedipus, for instance. And when he's talking about the parents who Oedipus thought he had in Corinth, he gives different names. As mm. about the mm. he, the woman he thought he was his mother, and this uh, gives also the impression. This reinforces the impression that people have that there were many different ways of saying essentially the same stories, and that is why mythographers mm. have conflicting accounts of several myths. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com. <laughs>